Well, I want you to do something with me that is uh, the most helpful thing you can do for your life and your soul, and that's to open up your Bible with me to Luke chapter 24. I'm going to read the Bible, then understand it, believe it, and obey it. That's the order, that's the sequence of things that we ought to do. We've got to read it, understand it, believe it, and obey it. So if you're the world and the flesh and the devil, and you're against that, one of the chief strategies would be simply to have all of us keep our Bibles closed. And so, so opening up the Bible, I got a question for you. When Jesus is resurrected, and it's that first day, that glorious Sunday, first day of the week, simple question, how did Jesus choose to live that day? What did he do with his time on the day that he came up out of the tomb? What did he invest his time in? What were his priorities? Who did he go after looking for and speaking to? And it's in Luke 24 that we are told about how Jesus spent more time that day than he did doing anything else. So you see in the early portion of Luke 24, the the ladies go to the tomb and they find the tomb is empty. And if you pick up in verse 8, after the angel's proclamation, it says, And they remembered his words, and returning to the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words... uh, uh, seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. And so the ladies go to the tomb, they see the tomb's empty, and they go back, and the Bible says, they told all these things to the eleven, it's the eleven apostles, and to all the rest. And, and then we come down here to verse 13 and it says that very day two of them two of who two two of the group that was there when the ladies came and told their story right when it says they came and told the story to the 11 apostles and the rest and so when we get to to verse 13 two of those people who made up all the rest are on a journey and of all the things that Jesus could have done on the day of his resurrection I want you to look at what he chose to do And that's going to be Luke chapter 24, verse 13, all the way to verse 35. What does Jesus do after the resurrection? It says that very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and he went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. And one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man was a prophet Mighty indeed in word before God and all the people. And how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and beside all these things, it's now the third day since this happened. Let's pray together. Father, I pray now that we've read the scripture and we'll read more scripture that you'd give us grace to understand it. That you'd give us 
more grace to believe it, and then you'd give us even more grace to obey it. As we take a moment to consider what it is that Jesus chose to do when he walked out of the grave, help that to instruct us, help us to see what his priority was, how he used his time on the resurrection Sunday, that all history had moved to this day and all eternity that was to come would be in response to this day. So what is it that he did on this day? I pray we'd see clearly and that again you'd give us grace to understand how he used his time is is what he's still doing. His purpose on that day is his purpose on this day. I pray that you'd instruct us for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, there's, uh, there's, there's two guys, and they're traveling along. There's, there's two, two people who've been in Jerusalem, and all these things have gone on, and they're traveling back to Emmaus, about seven miles away from Jerusalem. And, uh, you know, they're probably not speed walkers, and so, uh, so, so it's probably two and a half hours or so is, is the amount of time that it would take. And when we meet them, they're, they're discouraged. They're, they're discouraged. They're, they're, they're disappointed. The, the Bible says, uh, as they travel along, that they looked sad. And, and they said, we had hoped that he had come to redeem Israel. Now, here's a sequence of events that can often happen. They misunderstand something, and their misunderstanding leads to disappointment. Their disappointment leads to doubt, and the end game of doubt is discouragement. I don't know, perhaps today, this morning, you've entered the sanctuary discouraged. And discouragement has its source ultimately in misunderstanding the word of God, misunderstanding something that he's revealed in the scripture. So another way of saying this is if we can understand the full revelation of what God's done in Christ Jesus in in, in the scripture, then that guards us from discouragement. One way to put it is there is no legitimate reason, no legitimate reason for any follower of Jesus to be overcome with discouragement. But when Jesus sees him, point number one is the discouragement of a confused heart. And I want you to see, of all the things that Jesus could do on the day of his resurrection, what he chooses to do is to invest his time in lovingly, patiently, but firmly and eternally correcting some people who are caught up in discouragement. It began with misunderstanding the word of God. Look what they had said. Verse 21. They're walking along, and they're having a little bit of a pity party. They're caught up in current events. It says, we had hoped. See, they've already said it in the past tense. They lost a hope. We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. So, quick question. What had they misunderstood? Now, the great benefit for us as a church family is we've been studying through the Gospel of Luke, have we not? I mean, we've spent the better portion of the last year walking through Luke, verse after verse, uh, chapter after chapter. And so we've already picked up on a huge theme in Luke's Gospel is that the majority of people misunderstood the mission of Jesus. The majority of people in Israel, their assumption was that the Messiah, when he came, was going to be what? A political Messiah. Now, now, Israel, if you know their history, if you're alive in 33 AD, your great hope is that somebody's going to come along and liberate you from the Romans. That was in that day. Generations had passed. And, 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 and their history is full of 
other nations ruling over them. Egypt, the Philistines, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans. They had all taken their turn at being the mightiest nation that had bullied Israel. And quite frankly, the people were tired of it. Now, we live here in the United States of America. All of us have grown up and lived in the nation that is the mightiest in the world. And so we can't quite uh, understand perhaps their perspective of not being the most economically prominent nation in the world, not being the most politically influential nation in the world, not being the nation that's got the mightiest army in the world. Israel was desiring a Messiah to come along and be their political deliverer. It's a strong pull towards this in Israel and quite frankly in America today. Now, now why is it that their hopes had gotten so high? Well, well, in Luke's gospel, we've studied through uh, on previous occasions about this, that, that Jesus has done some things that would demonstrate that, hey, if he was going to be a political Messiah, he'd make a good one. He, 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 for example, if you turn back to Luke chapter 8, there's a magnificent scene there when the disciples are in a boat and a storm comes on the scene. And it's a violent storm. And it's so violent that these experienced fishermen among the disciples, they're scared and they think they're going to go, to go under. Now, now if, if, we, if we pick up on the, on the thought that Israel's looking for a political messiah, a military hero. If you read much history, you know that particularly in those times, and even up until our own, if you're leading an army, one of the variables that you don't have control over is, is the weather. You know, I, I was just reading in the Second World War, the D-Day invasion, June the 6th, 1944. Did you know the D-Day invasion was not originally planned to be on June the 6th, 1944? It was scheduled a couple of days early. And you know why General Eisenhower called off the invasion? What do you think? The weather. It was, it was raining. And, and the sea was too choppy for the army, uh, the Allied uh, army to advance on Normandy. And Jesus has just demonstrated choppy water, bad weather, no problem. He says, peace, be still, and the winds and the waves obeyed him. Could that be advantageous to a conquering military hero? I think so. I think so. You go a little bit later on in that same chapter. There's a few verses later. Now, if you're a conquering military hero, you got to deal with casualties in your army. And there's a sequence of events that happens back to back. There's a lady with a tremendous amount of bleeding that cannot stop. She's tried everything, and then she reaches out and touches the fringe of his garment. You remember this, and what happens? Immediately, the bleeding stopped. And, and on that scene, immediately goes to this guy named Jairus. He had a daughter who was dying. And as a matter of fact, while Jesus is interacting with this lady who's got the issue with bleeding, the, the Jairus' little girl, about 12 years old, dies. And Jesus goes to her house. And what does he do? He walks into her room, picks her up, or, picks her, or t- uh, takes her by the hand, and says, My little lamb, arise. Now question, if you were a conquering military leader, would it be helpful to automatically and with just a, oh, someone reaching out and touching you for your bleeding to stop? That'd be pretty helpful, wouldn't it? I mean, if, you, if you've got a bad wound, I mean, what, what are casualties? Somebody's wounded or somebody dies. That's what casualties are, right? And so Jesus has just demonstrated, hey, if somebody gets a bad wound and they're bleeding and nobody can stop the bleeding, guess what? Just reach out and touch me and you're healed. And then worst case scenario, if someone is killed on the battlefield, what's Jesus just demonstrated? I'll just bring them back to life. Now, now, if you're someone sitting in Israel and you're thinking to yourself, we really need a political, military, heroic Messiah to come along and drive these Romans out. Jesus is setting himself up for uh, 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 that 
role and opportunity a little bit later on. They're out in the middle of nowhere. And there's 5,000 people there. 5,000 men plus women and children. And, and Jesus takes a few fish and a few loaves of bread and he feeds them all. Now again, context. Military conquering king. In those days, what was one of the, one of the largest obstacles is simply, we simply call the supply line. Now I like to read World War II, so it wasn't too long ago I was reading about the Battle of the Bulge. And you know what that ultimately came down to? Between the Nazi Germany and the Allies? Supply lines. Who could get their gasoline to the tanks so they could keep moving? Now, in Jesus' day, uh, days of his earthly ministry, one of the great obstacles for a military leader who's leading a large army is simply, how are we going to feed all these folks? Right? I mean, the Romans, that's why they built the roads. So, so all the supplies can go and their armies can move quickly and the supply lines can get there. Now, Jesus has just demonstrated what? I mean, if you're going to feed a, an army, whether it's 5,000 plus... We don't even need a supply line anymore. We, we, if it's just a little boy, we'll come along with the army and just bring a sack, a little bit of fish, a little bit of bread. And, and that's why in John's gospel, when John writes down that account, here's what the Bible says. They sought to make him king by force. Why? Because, oh, finally somebody's come along. After this long line of Assyrians and Persians and Babylonians and Greeks and Romans, Here's somebody. We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Misunderstanding leads to disappointment. Disappointment leads to doubt. Doubt leads to discouragement. And some of us in the room today are facing tremendous discouragement because we've misunderstood what it is that Jesus actually came to do. For hundreds of years, they had longed for deliverance. And then Jesus shows up and he does incredible things. We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. You could hear in their statement that, that now they're stuck a little bit. They're disappointed. They got their, their one foot's here in hope and one foot's here in, in, in doubt. They, they expected and longed for a military or political messiah, and they didn't get it. I've used this illustration before, but I, but I think it helps us in, in this particular uh, point. The, the, uh, the um, discouragement of a confused heart. Several years ago, when our uh, oldest daughter was about four years old and her son was two years old, we, we took them to Disney World. And it's the first time we'd been, and, and I had planned it to the nth degree. You know, you've seen the parent who's a little too involved in the planning. That was me. All right, I mean, we, by the second almost, at 10, 15, 30 seconds, we're going to be here and do this. And I'd planned, and we'd prepped, and, and man, we got there and, and, and packed everything up. And, and we drove, by the way, drove with a four-year-old and a two-year-old. Just friendly suggestion, don't ever do that. You know, uh, the 10-hour the, the drive became uh, much, much longer. But, but anyway, I, I had all this great anticipation and hope that she was going to enjoy it. She's daddy's girl. We riding these rides, having a great time. Now, uh, our son was of an age that he still had to take a nap in the afternoon. And so we'd go back to the hotel, and, and, and I told her, we can do whatever you want to do today. Your choice. And so we walked around at our hotel, and she found a swimming pool. And we got out there, and, and uh, uh, Mr. Preparation had, had, had prepared all things except bringing a swimming suit for us. So we bought one from Disney that um, we're still trying to pay off. But, um, <laughs> but, uh, but uh, 
got her in the swimsuit, and, and we go to this little playground, and man, she's living it up, and I'm snap, snapping pictures. I mean, I, I just saw this little bundle of pictures the other day, and she's having the time of her life, biggest smile on her face, and I'm sitting there thinking, this is it, this is it, this is why we've come, this is what I wanted to do, this is, she's having the time of her life, and I will never forget it. She ran up to me, biggest smile on her face, daddy's heart just melting, and I was like, oh, this is so wonderful, and she says something I will never, ever, ever forget. She looks me in the eyes, and she says, daddy, I said, what, honey? She said, this is awesome. I said, it is it awesome. She said, this is just like the spray park in Rocky Mount. I said, said, what did you say? What did you just say? Traveled so far. Paid so much. Planned so far in advance. And so a four-year-old girl comes up and says, it's just like the place right, the place right around the corner from our house. I mean, we, just, we could have just stayed there. And a lot of lessons to be learned from, from this scenario. But, but here's the one I'm, I'm trying to make. When it comes to Jesus, it's not that our expectations are too high. It's that our expectations and hopes are are far too low. Disney World, she didn't realize I had so much more planned for her. And that's how we are with God. We're far, C.S. Lewis put it this way, far too easily pleased. You see, they wanted a political Messiah. They wanted a temporary earthly kingdom. And Jesus has come to give them so much more than they expected or wanted. He offers them something vastly superior to a temporary earthly kingdom. And I think we fight with this in our own day. It's not just them, it's us. He's come to grant victory over greater foes than the Romans. He's come to conquer sin and death and devil, the devil and the grave. Listen to what he says himself, Jesus, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. I'm the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even though he die, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. They were disappointed in Jesus because they misunderstood his mission. And that, can under, and that can happen in our lives today. Many people get discouraged because they misunderstand the word of God. They have it sometimes in part, but not in whole. I want you to notice something, very applicable to our lives, by the way, that they were discouraged because all their focus was on current events and momentary headlines. Their eyes were kept from recognizing him, verse 16. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? What are y'all talking about? And they stood still, looking sad. That's a description of some of our lives. We stand still looking sad. And one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know these things that have happened there in these days? Are you the only one around who hasn't heard about this? This is someone on September the 12th, 2001, saying, what happened yesterday? This is someone the day after the Kennedy assassination saying, well, I don't, what's going on? What's everybody talking about? They said, are you the only one in Israel who doesn't know what's going on? Notice, they said, uh, uh, 
He said to them, what things? He said, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed in word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. The discouragement of a confused heart. Their focus was on the headlines of the day. They are interpreting the will of God through circumstances, and they've got it exactly backwards. We're prone to this too. Instead of interpreting the will of God, what God must be up to by looking at the headlines and the circumstances, you know what we ought to do? Turn that totally upside down. We interpret circumstances and temporary matters in light of the will of God. So if his mission was not to be a political messiah or military hero, what was his mission? I'm glad you asked. Even though I know you didn't really ask, I asked on your behalf. If his mission was not to overthrow the Romans, what was it? You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Matthew one twenty one. How about 1 Timothy one fifteen? Here's a trustworthy saying, trustworthy saying, that deserves full acceptance. In other words, don't misunderstand this. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Luke 19.10. For the Son of Man came to seek and save that which was lost. They were discouraged. Discouraged because they misunderstood. Discouraged not because they expected too much. Discouraged because they hoped for so little. And their fears are still around today. I fear sometimes we would prefer a temporary earthly kingdom to an eternal salvation. And now let's notice. (laughs) Now let's notice how Jesus responds to them. And we're going to get to Jesus' response, but, but I, I do feel the need to point something out here very briefly. Up here in verse uh, 13, that very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about these things that had happened, and while they were talking and discussing together. So I want you to notice, before Jesus shows up, what they were doing. I want you to see that they were in a very precarious situation. And I think this is why Jesus shows up, by the way. They're talking and discussing together. Discouragement is contagious. They're talking and discussing, but neither of them is understanding. Do you see the problem? Neither understood the scriptures. And I tell you, in 2015, in the United States of America, there are a lot of places like this. And there are a lot of people like this. That that all they're doing is pooling their ignorance together. And, and, And some of our relationships are this way. And some of our friendships are this way. We just get together and we don't understand the scripture. You don't understand the scripture, but we're still going to talk about it. They're talking and discussing. I mean, can you imagine how that conversation must have gone? What, what were they talking about? Well, we uh, hoped he had planned it. Uh, you can almost hear them, can't you? I thought he was going to redeem Israel. I mean, why didn't he take Pilate and the chief priest out? They're all discussing. And he does not walk away from them. Instead, he walks with them. So, point number one, the discouragement of a confused heart. Let's move to point number two, the discovery of a challenged heart. Let's read together verses uh, uh, where where we left off. We had hoped, verse 21, that that he had been the one to redeem Israel. Yet, and besides all these things, it's now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early this morning. Uh Uh-oh, what are we finding out? They've heard, they've been informed of the resurrection of the dead. And their response to that was to go home, to go back to Emmaus. They're confused. 
They did not find his body. They came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. See, they have secondhand knowledge. And Jesus is about to bless them with some firsthand knowledge. You got firsthand knowledge about Jesus? Good news, he'll, he'll give it to you. Another cannot believe on your behalf. You've heard, you've heard Sunday school teachers, you've heard preacher, you've heard a choir give a message, but have you, you got firsthand knowledge. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. All right, so their story's been confirmed, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning, oh, I love this. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. The discovery of a challenge to our continuing verse 28. So they drew near to the village to which they were going and he acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly saying, stay with us. For it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in and stayed with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were open, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while, we talked to, while he talked to us from the road, while he opened up the scriptures, the discovery of a challenged heart? Jesus drew near to them. They're talking. They're discussing. They're on their seven-mile journey, and Jesus draws near to them. So one thing we take right off, Jesus takes the initiative with them. Jesus comes along to, to them, and he draws near not to condemn them and also not to condone them. He draws near to claim them, to correct them, and to comfort them, and he leaves them better off than he found them. Time with Jesus is never wasted time. So uh, a simple application for you and I, as you become more like Christ, you're going to be like this too. You're going to leave people better off than they were when they came across your path to begin with. You'll begin to encourage the discouraged, refresh the downtrodden, help heal the heartbroken because you share the word of God accurately and faithfully. Now, this is the first extended scene that we have in the scriptures of Jesus after the resurrection. And what's he doing? He sought them. He takes the initiative with them. Remember, he's the good shepherd who goes after the wandering sheep. Now, here's the shepherd. He sees some sheep over here. and They're wandering. They're disgusting, they're confused, they're discouraged, and he goes after them. Friends, if you're discouraged and confused this morning, you've got a shepherd. He will walk with you. He'll take the initiative. He didn't just, uh, Jesus sought them, and he also caught up with them. He caught them. He catches them. And I want you to know, uh, if, if you'll uh, notice in verse 17 and in verse 19, the first two statements, or rather it's not the right way of saying it, the two first things he says to them are in question form. This is how a good physician works. He's asking questions of them. Now, one of the reasons, one of the reasons, truthfully, that we don't spend a lot of time with Jesus is he kind of asks us some probing questions. And sometimes we don't like to be probed, do we? We don't, we don't like anybody going beneath the surface with us, going down to the depths. We want to keep it up on the surface. Let's talk about the game last night. Let's talk about the weather. Let's talk about, and now Jesus begins to, to probe a little bit deeper. What are you talking about? You remember in Genesis 3, after the fall, God comes along, and he's the same, 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 same thing, asking question. Where are you? Who told you that you were naked? When Elijah's down on the dumps, when Elijah's discouraged in the cave, what are you doing where you are? He comes along and asks questions. He doesn't come lecturing them and condemning them. And... You want to know the test of a person's character? 
What do they do when they're proven right? When what they said would happen is actually what happens. That's a person's character. Do they gloat? Jesus doesn't come along gloating. He saw them. He caught them. And then, most importantly, he taught them. Jesus teaches them. And look at verses 31 and 32. He had to open two things to end their discouragement. Verse 31, and their eyes were opened. They recognized him. He vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? The Puritans had a saying, the same sun that melts to snow hardens to clay. What they were getting at is that an open Bible for some sets their hearts ablaze. For others, it's boring and drab and not all that interesting. And I just ask you this morning, of which of those do you fall into? Now, now the point is, is, is clear. Jesus had to open up two things. One, open up their eyes, and then he had to open up the Scriptures. Now, I invited you to open up the Bible, and you've got it open in front of you, but it's a work of God to take your open Bible and really open it up. Do you know what I mean? So that it's not boring, and it's not drab, and there are not a thousand other things we'd rather do with our time than, than read the Holy Word of God. Open my eyes that I may see wondrous things out of your law. Psalm 119 and verse 18. Jesus doesn't leave them discouraged. He doesn't walk away from them. He walks with them. And I can't help but remembering before the fall. Do you remember what God liked to do with Adam and Eve? Do you remember what he liked to do? The Bible says in the cool of the day. What would he do? He'd come and and walk with them. This helps us understand the greatest gift that Jesus can give us is not something. He doesn't walk out of the tomb and just start handing out stuff, you know. He comes out of the tomb, and what he offers them is himself. The greatest blessing God gives is it's not something, it's that he gives himself. And when Jesus has opportunity, he can do, he's the most free man that there's ever been. He comes out of the resurrection tomb and do whatever he wants to do. You know what he chooses to do? I want to go walk with some disciples. I want to go walk alongside some confused people. And what happens is, if God, by his grace, opens your eyes, has this ever happened to anybody? You had looked down at his word, you, you, and, and for a long time you didn't just quite get it, and then all of a sudden it's like it came alive. This is what Paul prays in Ephesians 1. I pray that the eyes of your heart will be enlightened so that you know the hope to which he's been called. And God does such a work in your heart and mind that this becomes exciting. And all the other stuff that's puffed up in our culture, all the Netflix shows and all the television programming and all the sporting events, those things actually start to be boring, and this starts to be exciting. Not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road when he opened to us the scriptures. It says in verse 27, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, what that tells us is that all the Bible is about Jesus. I'd love to have an audio recording, although it was probably in you know, a language I wouldn't understand, come to think of it. But then if somebody interpreted the audio recording of Jesus' two and a half hour talk, his two and a half hours of discussion of the Old Testament that's all about him, how the Exodus is about him. How Ruth and her redemption is about him. How Psalm 22 is about him. How Psalm 23 is about him. How Isaiah's suffering servant is about him. And by the way, how how Isaiah's conquering king is about him. That it's all about him. Now the world, all it can do is harden your heart. Jesus can set your heart afire. The problem he diagnoses in verse 25. Foolish ones and slow of heart to believe. So what did it involve? Their mind or their hearts? Foolish speaks of the mind. You're ignorant. So you need somebody to teach you. You need correction. And then there is something wrong with our hearts as well. Belief involves the mind and the heart. 
The problem is they had interpreted the will of God through circumstances and not circumstances through the will of God. And now they're learning that all the Bible has to do with Jesus. If you're ever in a Bible study, if you're ever reading the Scripture, no matter what chapter, Old Testament, New Testament, and you don't see Jesus, somebody or something is wrong. There's no lasting Bible study, or excuse me, no lasting joy in the study of God's Word without Jesus. The walk began with the discouragement of a confused heart. And as they walk and as Jesus ministers to them and opens their eyes and opens up the Scripture... It became the discovery of a challenged heart. Now, somebody gave me a, a whole lot of helpful input right before I got married, and it went like this. It was real simple. This is so simple. So when you get married, here's just a real, it's a very difficult lesson, but it's a lesson you need to, to learn. Most of us will love our spouse in the manners that we ourselves like to be loved. You know, if, some, if, if somebody wants to show you that, that you're precious to them or that you really love them, most of us love another person the way we ourselves want to be loved. And, and, and so, so this very helpful person said, you have to learn how your wife wants to be loved. And I'm almost 14 years into this, and I'm still learning, all right? But a lot of us just love other people the way we want to be loved, and we're all wired a little bit different. So, so what am I getting at is, if you're going to walk in relationship with God, you have to come humbly to terms with the way that he's chosen to reveal himself to us. And that way is his word. The Bible says that Jesus comes along after the resurrection and their eyes are hidden from him or they they can't quite understand what's going on here. I believe what's going on here is that he's enabling these disciples to see that more than anything else, their trust has to be in his word. What does he use? He interpreted to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. And I want you to see here, they drew near to the village to which they were going and he acted as if he were going Further, But they urged him strongly, saying, stay with us. Most of us have all of God that we want. Which brings me to the third and final point after the discouragement of a confused heart and the challenge to, or or the uh, discovery of a challenged heart, the final point is the declaration of a convinced heart. They urged him strongly. When, when is the last time you strongly urged Jesus to stay and speak to you? You remember Jacob in Genesis? He wouldn't let go of that angel. He kept saying, until you bless me, until you bless me. Now, do you think the angel couldn't have really left? Do you think Jacob was that strong? No, no, no. Here, here's the point of that, and here's the point of this. Jesus draws near to those who accept his terms he begins to open up the scripture and they say well we we want more of that blessed are those here what jesus said blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness they shall be satisfied far too often we're seeking satisfaction in some ungodly worldly entertainment and we're still hungering and we're still thirsting and we ask ourselves why do i open up this book and it doesn't seem that interesting they strongly urged him please stay with us you know look what it says now, 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 here's what happens if we get the sequence of events. They're walking and talking, and then Jesus draws near to them. And they walk a little bit longer, and Jesus is going to go away. But after Jesus had drawn near to them and taught them, they then asked Jesus, would you please stay? And that's the, that's the mark of a man or a woman whom God says, hey, I'll set your heart afire. 
You want a heart that burns? This is, a, this is the disposition. There's humility. There's a willingness to be corrected, right? That's what he said to it. Most of us, if somebody called us foolish and slow of heart, we would have said, all right, I'm done with that. But they accepted his correction. The opened eyes, now listen, the opened eyes and the burning hearts come after they ask for more of him. And again, most of us have as much of God as, as we want. It's not that we hope for too much. It's that we've hoped for too little. The open eyes come after they understand that it was necessary that the Christ should suffer. It's the first thing he tells them in verse 26. You want a beginning point in walking with God? Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? What do we got there? The suffering of the crucifixion and the glory of the resurrection. That's the beginning point. Now, I don't quite know how to articulate this, but something I've been thinking about a lot this week is, I think many of us have embraced half that statement. I think most of us would say, I really do believe, I really do believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins. I really do believe that. I really do believe that he, he's the propitiation of God. He's, he's the one that God put forward as a propitiation to be received by faith. And when we look at the cross, we understand, yes, that when uh, our sin has, has uh, Jesus' response to that is to pay for our sin so that the righteous wrath of God and his mercy, they come together at the cross. We believe that. We believe it's necessary that he should suffer things. But do you see, that's not all that Jesus said to them. That he should suffer these things and enter into his glory. What am I getting at is I think very often in my own life I've been convicted of this. And I just pass it along to you is that we sometimes live in light of him dying on the cross. But not in light of him actually coming up out of the grave. Because if he came up out of the grave, you know what that means? He is the king. He has authority. And now he gets to tell us what to do. And that's where the rub comes from us, just quite frankly. I mean, we're Americans. We're rugged individualists. King? How, you, you know America's history, right? How, how's kingship gone in America? It's not gone very well, has it? Last guy named George who tried to be king over us, we did a Boston Tea Party and the rest is history. And, 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 I, and, I, and I'll tell you this, he is the suffering servant, but he is the conquering king. And, and while many of us, our hearts don't burn for Jesus, and the scripture's not very interesting to us, is because It's all well and good, die on the cross for my sins. Thank you for doing that, by the way. But over here, reigning, authority, kingdom, dominion, forever and ever, that that, that now the very same sins that you died for, now you say, I'm going to give you power. That's the word that we're talking about, the power of the resurrection. Now you're going to give me power. And the cross, the penalty of our sin is overcome by the resurrection. The power of sin is overcome. And I just uh, uh, encourage you as lovingly but as boldly as I know how, do not live as if half this statement is true, but the other is not. Question, how do you know? How do you know? And let's end with this. How do you know if in your own life you've experienced both the wonder of the cross that he's died for your sins and that he's raised gloriously? And that's the declaration, our last point, the declaration of a convinced heart. Once that happens, what is true in their lives? Let's read it. Verse 33. 
They rose that same hour. Does that mean? A little bit of urgency here about this. They rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. Question. What in the world would they do that for? They just left Jerusalem. Have you ever done this? Taken a trip and as soon as you got there, you said, well, we got to go back. I've done that sometimes not seven miles, but I did that this morning over at Sunset Baptist. I, 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 I preached and then I went to my car and then guess what? I didn't have my keys. You can't get very far that way. So you know what I did? I turned around and went back to my keys and then I could leave. They, they just got to Jerusalem and now they're, uh, sorry, up to Emmaus and they're going to go back to seven miles. I, I think it probably took them two and a half hours to go from Jerusalem to Emmaus. It probably took them 20 minutes to get back. They return to Jerusalem. Question, what are they going to do when they get there? Here is how you know if the power of the resurrection is in your life. They found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them, in the breaking of the bread. Now, over here in Luke 24, 21, they stood still, looking sad. We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Stood still, looking sad. Over here in 24, 33, they're not standing still anymore, and they're not looking sad anymore. They've been corrected, and they become declarers of the resurrection. Up to this point, it's been all what somebody else said. Oh, the women said they had the story. They went to the tomb, and they said there's nobody there. And then Simon, he said the same thing. And then over here, the declaration becomes their own. They declared it personally, and they declared it publicly. They've gone from, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel, to the Lord has risen indeed. And if I just want to confirm in your hearts one more time, notice the way that they say it. Because lordship is the issue. Many of us want Jesus Savior. Save me, Jesus. We don't want Lord. What's their statement? The Lord has risen. The Lord has risen. The Lord has risen. It's an it's a evil fallacy of this age to think that we can get him to be Savior and then let's just keep him there and we'll go on being the lords of our own lives. No, the convinced heart becomes a public declarer of the gospel. Do you see this? This couldn't be any simpler, could it? Eyes opened. Let's get an order here. Eyes open. Scripture open. What else is open? Mouth is open. Eyes open. Scripture open. Mouth open. That's the, that's the orderliness of, of, of Christ. You want an orderliness of the devil? Eyes closed. Scripture closed. Mouth closed. Started out the discouragement of confused hearts. Moved to the discovery of a challenged heart. And then move to the declaration of a convinced heart. They declare publicly and personally. You see, it was no longer enough for them just for Simon Peter to go up and declare. Now, Simon Peter's going to do some declaring, my friends. But they said, we're going to do it too. Why? Because they were convinced. Now, we're all invited to walk with Jesus. As a matter of fact, a more accurate way of saying it is that Jesus takes the initiative with us. But he's not going to leave us. He's not going to leave us. Can, can we end this way? We'll conclude this way. As you walk with him, you're going to either come to this point in verse 28. They drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going further. They urged him strongly, saying, stay with us. 
Stay with us. There's some of you here this morning. That's who you are. Stay with us. Teach us. Correct us. We want to declare the gospel. But it could also be that he interpreted them, all the scriptures, things concerning himself. And say, you know what? I'm, I'm good. I'm good at Emmaus. And he can just go on. I set out to go home and I'm just going to go home. <laughs> but here's what you miss out on. Oh, did not our hearts burn within us? While he talked to us on the road, while he opened up the scripture. Our issue is not that we're hoping for too much in light of the resurrection. or too, It's that we're, we're hoping for too little. We're going to have an invitation. And we're going to do our invitation publicly and personally. Because that's how you declare the gospel. So I'm just going to give you, we're about to stand and we're going to sing. Moving towards the end of our service. But before we get up and walk out of here and go back to Emmaus, so to speak. I need a couple of invitations, a couple of lines of invitation. For some of you, you're invited this morning to walk with Jesus for the very first time in faith. You've never believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. You've never understood that it's necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory. That the cross is about him paying your penalty, him paying your debt. Now we talk a lot in our country about our national debt. And I don't have lost count at 17 trillion what it is. How are you ever going to pay that back? Oh, that is pale, it pales in comparison to the debt we owe God for having sinned against him. You don't understand that. We just don't understand who he is and who we are. But Jesus goes to the cross to pay the debt in full. It's what the choir sung about this morning. It's finished. So you're invited this morning publicly and personally. And no such thing as a privatized faith in a resurrected Savior. That doesn't even make any sense. It doesn't make any sense for Jesus to be out of the tomb and then to just go back to Emmaus and say, okay, well, we'll just chill here in Emmaus. No, it's a public invitation because he died publicly and he came out of the tomb publicly. So you'd re- you're invited to respond in faith. You say, well, how do I do that? I don't even know what you're talking about. I'm going to stand right here at the front. And if God is doing a work in your heart through the word of God about who Christ is, that's what this whole section is about. That's what this whole book is about, by the way. And your heart's burning within you. And you say, God's calling me to himself through faith in Christ Jesus. I'm standing right here at the front in just a moment. Plant my feet firmly right there. You're invited to publicly respond. Say, I don't know what I'd say when I get there. Here's what you might say. I want to place my faith in Jesus. And then we're going to begin the conversation together. The whole church family here who prays to that end and loves to see God work. That's what heaven rejoices over. Maybe you're a follower of Jesus, but you're just in a season of discouragement. Maybe it's circumstantial things. Something's going on in your life. Jesus sought them, Jesus caught them, Jesus taught them. Maybe this morning he's called up with you and he's lovingly offered you some correction. He's a good shepherd. And maybe you're spiraling down into discouragement because you misunderstood something and you had some false expectations and those expectations weren't met and then that led to some doubt and some confusion and now it's full-blown discouragement. We get, we get off track when we want Jesus to adopt our mission for what we think he should do instead of what he actually came to do, which was to save sinners. Everything else is a byproduct of that. But again, the follower of Jesus has no legitimate reason for discouragement. What would discourage you? Unforgiven sin? Not in Christ. A pointless existence? Not in Christ. A no eternal life? Not in Christ. And also, maybe it's been a long time if you're a follower of Jesus, since your heart burned within you because you've given up your heart and your mind over to something other than the Lord. 
or whatever it might be. And, and there's countless things that it could be. A hobby, a sin. <laughs> God's revealing to you today that you've settled for so much less than what he offers. And God might grant you grace to say, I urge you strongly, Jesus. Stay with me. Stay with me. Open my eyes. I can see you clearly. Open up the scriptures. Help me to see that everything is about Christ. Would you stand with me? And we're going to pray together. And see, invitation's wide open. Invitation's wide open. If salvation in Christ has always been about what somebody else has said, but now God's doing a work in your heart, I invite you to respond. If you're in a season of discouragement, I'll pray with anybody who has a, a burden on their heart, or perhaps you want to come here to the front, just kneel as a way. Of, sometimes it, it helps to put something physical behind what God's doing spiritually. And you want to come here and kneel at the front and cry out to God, Oh God, would you not depart? Would you stay? I want to urge you strongly to do a work in my life, to open my eyes. And my heart might burn within me. Father, now we've opened up your word. We've read it. I pray by the grace of, of, of God and by the leading of the Holy Spirit that we've understood it. And the Holy Spirit would come and help us to believe it. And now to obey it. There's the discouragement of a confused heart. And there's a challenge or the discovery of a challenged heart that, that Jesus is a wonderful physician for the soul probing questions did you not know did you not understand slow to believe oh God we confess that we can be foolish and slow to believe that's an accurate description of us give us understanding open our eyes that we may see wonderful things in your word and delight in your ways pray that you bring people to salvation in this moment that they see that it was necessary it was not inconsequential. It was necessary that the Christ should suffer and enter into his glory. And I pray for anyone here today that's never accepted the forgiveness of God that's given in Christ Jesus, that you would bring them to repentance and faith on the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray for anyone here that's trying an impossible task, and that's to have Jesus, yes, die for my sins, but not be Lord over me. No, it's necessary for him to suffer and enter into his glory. We want to worship and serve and obey and believe the whole gospel, the whole truth of Jesus, crucified and risen forevermore. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.